It's Thursday, January the 18th, 2024, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow podcasting these days. I encourage you to go to our website, which is hoover.org. Uh, click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Head over to where it says multimedia and then audio podcast, and you'll see a dozen plus podcasts, including this one. I always endeavor to get the best and the brightest from the Hoover Institution to take part in these podcasts. Today being no exception, we're going to address a very complicated subject, which is what has happened in the Middle East in the nearly 15 weeks now since Hamas fighters attacked targets inside Israel. I also want to discuss the situation in the Red Sea and Yemen. Who are the Houthis? Why are they attacking vessels transiting to and from the Suez Canal, as well as naval forces protecting those waters? So joining us today to make sense of these matters, Joel Rayburn. He's a Hoover Institution visiting fellow, Middle East historian, member of Hoover's Middle East and Islamic World Working Group. We're also joined by Bernard Hagel, a professor of Near East Studies at Princeton University and a noted expert on Yemen and a contributor to Hoover's Middle East Working Group. Joel Bernard, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. So it's thoroughly Thursday here in California. It's the middle of the day where Bernard is, and it is late in the day in England where Joel just happens to be. The latest news coming out of the Middle East and the Near East, uh, we now have Iran and Pakistan exchanging missiles, uh, Iran apparently firing first across the Pakistan border, Pakistan retaliating. In both cases, one country saying that it was trying to eliminate separatists living in the other country. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. launched a new strike against the Houthis, targeting a dozen-plus Iranian-provided missile launchers, the likes of which the Houthis have been firing at ships in the Red Sea. Bernard, I'll start with you. Uh, let me ask you a very pedestrian question, but I think it's worth one explaining to our audience. Who exactly are the Houthis? And how did a civil war in Yemen that broke out a decade ago expand to include Western shipping and clashes now with U.S. naval forces? Um, all right. Well, that's that's uh, 30 uh, seconds uh, or less. <laughs> yeah. the, the Houthis are a uh, political and religious movement that uh, was founded by a family in Yemen that belongs that claims to be descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. That's why they're called Sayyids. Mm -hmm. And they're a minority uh, in Yemeni society. And uh, their main leader is a man who died in uh, 2004, was killed in 2004 by the Yemeni government. He uh, put together an ideology that borrowed from Al-Qaeda, borrowed from Khomeinism in Iran, borrowed from Hezbollah, from the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, borrowed from also anti-imperialist, sort of old-style leftist ideologies, and put this all together in a series of lectures that are now studied in Yemen and, in fact, all, all uh, uh, students in schools that uh, where the Houthis dominate have to study his lectures. And it's an extremely radical ideology that is anti-American, seeks to destroy Israel, but also condemns Jews outright. It's sort of an anti-Semitic ideology, which is sort of a new thing in its explicit uh, nature uh, for Islamists. And the only way that they, they're unpopular in Yemen, they're extremely brutal, uh, with the Yemeni population, and most Yemenis are not uh, either Sayyids, so they don't belong to the same group, nor are they Zaydis. The Zaydis, this is a Shiite group in Yemen to whom uh, the uh, Houthis belong, represent about 35% of the population. So in order for them to rule, they have to use one of two methods, and they typically use them both simultaneously. One is to repress and, and use violence. The other is to promote this very radical 
very anti-Western ideology because that gives them legitimacy. So the reason that they're engaged in the war uh, against uh, maritime shipping is to sort of promote their 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 identity as you know opponents as enemies of America of the, of the Western world, um, and that burnishes their their legitimacy domestically. Uh, the civil war in Yemen actually with them began in in the early two thousands, and then there were six, a series of six wars with the central government. Then the Arab Spring led to a breakdown of the uh, central Yemeni government, and a civil war war ensued that was joined by the Houthis, and the Houthis took Sana'a, the capital, in September 2014, and looked like they were going to take over the whole country. So the Saudis uh, mounted a coalition to support the internationally recognized Yemeni government and entered the war to stop the Houthis from taking over the country. A, a, an effort that was only semi-successful, uh, because the Houthis still control about 70% of the population of Yemen, and roughly you know, a, a third to... Uh, 40% of the of the territory of the country. Very difficult group to dislodge because they're a bit like the Taliban or the Viet Cong. They're kind of a ragtag militia, but strongly supported by Iran and strongly armed and trained by Iran and by Hezbollah, which is where all their missiles and, and drones are coming from. And you said when they fire a missile into the Red Sea, is this a propaganda measure? Is this just to make the regime look strong? Or, Bernard, is there a strategic goal here? Are they trying to disrupt the world economy? Are they trying to somehow screw up the Suez Canal? Why are they just trying to make the U.S. who would? What is their end goal here? I, th I think there are three goals, actually, uh, mm -hmm. these attacks on maritime shipping. Some are some are unique to the or, or to the Houthis themselves. And other goals have uh, are are kind of joint goals by of the Houthis and of the Iranians. So what's unique to the Houthis is that by attacking the shipping and presenting themselves as uh, supporters of the Palestinians and Gaza and enemies of Israel and so on, that all helps. As I said, you know their their legitimacy domestically inside Yemen, because this is something that Yemenis Arabs are upset about, um, and the Houthis look like they're doing something about it. The other two goals are. Uh, goals that they that the Houthis share with the Iranians. One is to put pressure on Saudi Arabia and essentially to shake Saudi Arabia down to get the Saudis to pay for uh, the Houthis not to uh, not to fight and to kind of make peace. And there's a an agreement now that's being uh, hatched between the Saudis and the Houthis to get the Houthis to um, make peace with other Yemeni factions. Um, but that comes at an as at a higher Price now that the Houthis are attacking shipping, uh, because that affects Saudi the Saudi economy and the Egyptian economy and the whole region. The the, the second goal again one that's um, that that unites the Houthis and the Iranians is the Iranians have for a long time wanted to show the world and specifically the United States, but also the Saudis, that they can block all three major maritime choke points in the region, and the right. three are the Strait of Hormuz at the entrance of the Persian Gulf. The Bab al-Mandab at the entrance of the Red Sea, and the third is the Suez Canal, which, if you can control Bab al-Mandab, you more or less control the Suez Canal. And this is essentially what Iran is able to now show through the Houthis, is that we're now in control of this region, with the ultimate aim, of course, of the Iranian regime and of the Houthis, to uh, get the Americans to leave the region. I mean, this is all about trying to get the United States defeated and uh, and to force it to exit the region. 
All right, Joel, let's talk about the regime in Tehran and uh, what would prompt them to fire missiles in Pakistan's direction? And what what are they thinking? Well, in Pakistan's direction, uh, that that one's uh, that one's a bit perplexing to me uh, because it's a profound miscalculation uh, when they're stretched pretty thin on other fronts uh, to to draw in uh, the Pakistanis when it's it, it doesn't seem to serve a, a larger purpose other than perhaps to demonstrate that they're uh, able to and willing to use their ballistic missiles. Uh, which, which is something they have an interest in doing right now. Um, that's why they used ballistic missiles for a fake rationale against uh, targets in Erbil and, and uh, killed the unwitting Kurdish uh, businessman uh, and his family. And also why they fired ballistic missiles uh, quite some distance into northwest Syria to hit uh, right. an empty building uh, under the pretext that it was a reaction against a response to uh, whatever cells carried out the big uh, terrorist bombing in Kerman. That's that's the rationale. I think I think the Iranian regime is in a phase of demonstrating its ability and its willingness to escalate to go further up the escalation ladder with the United States and uh, and with Israel uh, on on a variety of fronts. They're now they're active on five fronts now in the Middle East and the surrounding region. They're, they're active via Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Also a little bit in the West Bank, where there are some Iranian-sponsored uh, Islamic Jihad cells that have been trying to mobilize some resistance there. Second front is uh, in on the Israeli-Lebanon border with Lebanese Hezbollah. That also extends over into Syria as well. There's another front with the IRGC and Hezbollah. That that I consider essentially the same front, what the Israelis call the war in the north. There's a third front on which they're active, and that's uh, striking the American presence or American interests, American allies in Iraq and Syria. The fourth front is the maritime front, uh, where they're active both in the Babel Mandeb and in the uh, and in the Strait of Hormuz and the, the, the greater Persian Gulf region. Now, with the Pakistanis, that would be a fifth front, and that would go along with uh, uh, that would go along with what is essentially indirectly a sixth front, um, which is the Iranian regime's intervention in the Ukraine war as uh, a principal arms supplier uh, to the uh, to the Russian military there. So, I agree with Bernie. It, it, and this has been coming for a long time. I mean, what, what what the Iranian regime is doing is irrespective of what happened on October seventh. October seventh is uh, October seventh is was part of a, lo- a long developing campaign across the Middle East by the Iranian regime. Uh, essentially, I, I I think to 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 in an encroaching way uh, to seize control of the northern Middle East across the, the axis that goes from. Uh, Iran proper over to the Mediterranean Sea, and then uh, and then in a as as though that's a northern pincer, and then a southern pincer reaching around the Arabian Peninsula, establishing a strategic outpost via the Houthis um, off the Bab el-Mandeb, and it's designed, as Bernie said, to be able to to control, dominate uh, the three strategic waterways, the three strategic choke points there: Strait of Hormuz, Bab el-Mandeb, Suez Canal. There's also a fourth because by virtue. By virtue of their involvement in the Black Sea region, then they can also influence the Dardanelles. They can in, in the Kerch Strait, which would be a fifth. So, so they really, it's it's quite an ambitious 
um, regional and beyond regional strategy, which I, I think it, it's designed in, in the in the very broadest sense, it's designed um, to enable them to extort their way into being treated by the rest of the uh, by the rest of the world as a great power so that they can have a military access across the northern Middle East um, that puts them astride uh, the major uh, territorial connections between uh, European, the European economy and uh, Gulf energy producers and between NATO and NATO's extended allies in the Persian Gulf, Israel, and so on. And then, and then obviously to be able to, I mean, what, what they've demonstrated, the Iranian regime has demonstrated both in the, the Red Sea and in the Gulf of Oman and Indian Ocean, that they can disrupt the main um, uh, the main trade route between connecting uh, Europe and Asia. Um, and th that's a that's a pretty significant thing. And if, if they're able to do it without um, without the the rest of the world essentially restoring a deterrent to keep them from doing it, then what they will have demonstrated is they can if they do it now in the name of October 7th or whatever, they can do it in the future at any time for whatever reason they feel like. OK, Joel, you uh, tweeted the other day, or should I say you post on X, I guess we could still call the tweets. But anyway, you said the following on X, quote, detente without deterrence is nothing more than appeasement and worse is yet to come if Biden doesn't change course. OK, question, Joel, what exactly is the course? What is the strategy right now? And then, Bernie, I'd like you to chime in as well, because you talked about the Saudis trying to broker a deal with the Houthis to to uh, to cease and desist. Does the United States get involved or just lets the Saudis drive that one? So, Joel, first, why don't you start and explain what the what the grand U.S. strategy, if there if there is one here? Well, there isn't one yet. I, I mean, the. the the Biden administration came into office hankering to return to 2015 and the and restore the the nuclear agreement uh, with the Iranian regime. They they what they've been seeking since the first week in office is uh, what they call de-escalation, which is another word for detente, a detente approach with the Iranian regime and its uh, axis of proxies across the Middle East. That's and and they have been very very slow and and deeply reluctant. Uh, to change course from uh, from that overall uh, uh, strategy, and even at this late date, they are not doing the kind of things that you would need to do to really deter the Iranian regime and put a stop to their provocations across the region and beyond. The most significant case in point is that the Biden administration now is essentially engaged in warfare against the Iranian regime in response to acts of war by the Iranian regime and its, and its allies like the Houthis. So the, the Biden administration is in a shooting war with the Iranian regime and its allies, but they are not, they, they are not enforcing economic sanctions against the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime is generating more oil revenues than they did even before, um, even, even uh, before the Biden administration came into, uh, came into office. And uh, and they're doing it with impunity. They're moving. So I mean, it's ironic that at a time when the Iranians are disrupting a great amount of uh, commercial shipping traffic, that they themselves are are running a, a ghost fleet, an illicit uh, oil export fleet of more than, by some estimates, more than three hundred vessels with impunity, um, is being able to sell by some estimates as as many as much as. Uh, exceeding two million barrels a day, mostly to the Chinese. So, so it, it's a 
it's a mixed message. There are U.S. airstrikes against uh, IRGC proxies, but uh, but very little action against IRGC revenues. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think that the Iranians, you know, um, are extremely adept at playing a, a poor hand very well. You know, they take advantage of um, situations in the Middle East where you have misery and bad governance and are able to cultivate there in these regions uh, clients, um, non-state actors, then train them and, and, and then use them very effectively. So Hamas is a classic case in point. Uh, Lebanon, Yemen, you know, one way, in addition to deterring them militarily, one way is uh, to th- to deal with them is to think of how, how do you, um, you know, turn these countries around? How do you deal with the Palestinian issue? How do you deal with the Lebanese dysfunction? How do you deal with Yemen? So as not to give Iran, Iran this entree into these societies, Syria is another example, uh, and Iraq. Um what what the Saudis have done, and if you track sort of Saudi attitudes towards Iran, they they pretty much have taken their cue from the United States. So when the Trump administration was extremely forward leaning and aggressive, the Saudis were very forward leaning and aggressive as well, um, and this included their engagement um, in, in the war in Yemen, which began before Trump, but but continued, uh, you know, once he was in office. With the Biden administration, the message to the Saudis was very clear. First, the Biden President Biden called them a pariah. He said that um, he would punish them for their human rights violations, but also for their actions in the war in Yemen, where many civilians were being killed uh, through Saudi bombing. And so the Saudis uh, saw that the United States didn't have their back. And what what the Americans wanted was an end to the war in Yemen. So they began this process of negotiating a truce with the with the Houthis, and now there's a roadmap to peace. And all of this was at the prompting of the American administration uh, and and encouragement. So now now the Biden administration, having seen what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea, has decided no. You know, in fact, what the Saudis were saying about the Houthis was true all along that they're terrorists. Oh, by the way, the Biden administration also de delisted them. They removed them from the terrorism list um, that the U.S. puts out. Now they've just yesterday put them back on. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, why, why, why were they delisted in the first place? Because they wanted to, they, the, the Biden administration, in keeping with the Obama administration's belief, uh, has this view that if you, uh, you know, if, if, if you, you know, try to open up an avenue of conversation, if you, if you lessen the, 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 the pressure that, you know, the Houthis would be reasonable, uh, like the Iranian regime will be reasonable, and that, you know, ide- their ideology is just for show, and in fact, you can do business with them. I mean, this is proven to be wrong, both in Iran's case, and Hamas's case, and Hezbollah's case, as well as in the Houthi uh, case. These people take their ideology and their commitments very seriously, and they're willing to suffer and to make their own population suffer greatly, uh, you know, in order to promote their ideology and to wage war. So the Saudis are not willing to engage the Houthis anymore for, for, for two reasons. One is because they're doing Biden's uh, bidding by opening up a conversation with the Houthis. And two, they don't ha- the Saudis don't have faith in American deterrence. So the Americans hit the, the Houthis. The Houthis have a very hard time to hit back at the Americans. But if the Saudis join the coalition, then the Saudis will get the brunt of the Houthi counterattack. 
and their oil installations will be attacked again like they were in 2019 and their cities will be uh you know targeted with drones and ballistic missiles so you know if if the saudis had more confidence in the biden biden administration's abilities and willingness to deter both the houthis and the iranians i think you would see a very different saudi arabia a much more uh you know closely allied saudi arabia when it comes to uh fighting uh the iranians and their proxies but uh, you know there's no confidence or faith in the biden administration so the saudis don't want to get involved because they would be the first target of a counterattack. Yeah. No, Bernie, let's talk Yemen for a couple of minutes. Um, let's say in a better world, you can somehow stop the fighting. Uh, the reality is you're looking at a country that it racked with poverty. Uh, it's had a civil conflict to deal with. It has a shortage of resources. Even if you could end the fighting, Bernie, how would you rebuild this country? How would you develop leadership? And how would you keep other countries from meddling inside its affairs? Yeah, th That's not, you know... You know, as Americans, we always like to have, you know, uh, quick fixes or see solutions to problems. Yeah, we, you know, we, can, we can rebuild it and make it better. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of problems in the Middle East that are intractable and that need to be managed rather than solved, right? I mean, the solutions ultimately have to come from people in the Middle East themselves. And certainly, you know, we shouldn't make things worse for them by meddling. I think what the Saudis are trying to do by you know, getting the Houthis on the same table with other Yemeni factions, you know, has some chance of at least maintaining a truce. But ultimately, what will happen in Yemen, and this will drag the Saudis in, is that there will be a continuation of the civil war uh, between different Yemeni factions. And, and, uh, and then you'll have outsiders meddling in the country, you know, indefinitely, just like you do in Lebanon, for instance. So when you have a weak state and you have a very highly divided or extremely kind of fragmented society, as you do in Lebanon and Syria and in Yemen, uh, that attracts regional actors and international actors. Uh, in the case of Syria, of course, you even have the Russians involved, not just the Iranians uh, and the Americans, but the Turks as well and so on. So the same will be uh, indefinitely the case uh, for Yemen. I, I don't see a country that can be fixed um, anytime soon. Joel, you're nodding your head. Yeah, and, and I think I mean, uh, I mean it's unfortunate. Uh, Yemen is uh, Yemen is a fractured country. Um, it's it's not clear that uh, it'll remain. A, I mean, it, it's a disintegrated state right now, uh, and it's been that way in the past. There, we used to talk about North Yemen and South Yemen, if you recall. So. It, yeah, that's a very difficult. Uh, that's a very difficult conflict uh, to resolve. But uh, luckily for the United States, I don't think it's strictly necessary for U.S. strategic interests to resolve the underlying conflict there. What is necessary is to uh, restore deterrence so that neither the Iranian regime nor its Houthi clients uh, dares to to try to disrupt. Uh, the commercial shipping in the Red Sea, and it's not just the commercial shipping. I mean, if you look at the stakes um, you, for the Babel Mandeb in the Red Sea, um, a, an, an enormous chunk of the world's uh, internet traffic also goes through the the uh, undersea cables uh, that pass through the Babel Mandeb region. Those are at risk. Can you imagine if there were some sort of heightened conflict and those were cut, damaged? Um, that uh, and the Houthis and the IRGC were able to prevent their repair. Can you think? Imagine the strategic shock to the global economy and just to be able and op, all kinds of operations 
from from that. So, but so the U.S. has the U.S. has a very strong interest in in restoring that deterrent. In addition to that, the other aspect where the U.S. has a a significant interest, which we have not been um, fulfilling since 2009, really, but but on a, in a heightened way since 2015, is to help our Saudi and Emirati allies protect themselves from what is essentially uh, Iranian-directed uh, attack from Yemen via the Houthis. But also, you know, we say we, we say it's the Houthis, and, and politically in Yemen it is. But militarily, the Revolutionary Guards are there in force. There are a lot of them. And we're lear we've learned for some time that Lebanese Hezbollah is also there because Lebanese Hezbollah is to the... Uh, to the Iranians IRGC as the Cubans were to the Soviets during the Cold War. So I don't have any, I don't have any direct information on this. I'm not in the government anymore, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone were to come out and say, well, actually the ballistic missiles and the anti-cruise, the anti-ship cruise missiles and the armed drones that are being fired off from Yemeni territory, from Houthi controlled territory, actually those are being operated by Iranians and by Lebanese Hezbollah operatives, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Nor would I be surprised if if we were to learn that it's the Iranians that are picking the targets, that it's Iranian intelligence that's driving the targeting, that it's Iranian it, that it, that it's Iranian commanders that are directing what targets to hit when, which makes it it's an integral part then, and and not just maritime targets, but also. You know, there have been hundreds of ballistic missiles that have been fired from Houthi-controlled territory into Saudi Arabia, including at Riyadh over the over the last several years, including at Abu Dhabi. That's something that the United States should have um, should have acted upon as a, as a crucial interest for the United for U.S. Uh, national interests, and we didn't. I have to say, and, and I think you know Bernie intimated that, and that was certainly the conclusion that the Saudis and the Emiratis drew. From 2017 onward, there's been a really misguided argument, misguided, almost lobbying uh, in Washington, D.C. that works in the Iranians' favor, in the Houthis' favor, so that which is to try to frame the, the conflict in Yemen as some sort of Saudi invasion or Saudi Saudi uh, genocide of helpless uh, Yemenis, when in fact, since 2009, it has increasingly become an Iranian strategic campaign to neuter Saudi Arabia and the UAE, to, to hold them at risk, and to, and to, and to fracture uh, the U.S. alliance with those countries. And it's been, it's been incredibly effective. And yes, as Bernie said, the attitude I think now in the Gulf is now the whole world can see what we, the Saudis, we, the Emiratis, have, have argued for years which is that this is a serious threat to the to the security, not just of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but, but up to the global economy, to global interests and so on. Mm -hmm. What is the role that Russia is playing in all of this? And what is the role that China is playing in all of this? So the Chinese, um, the most important thing the Chinese have done, other than, you know, obviously trading with the region, uh, and buying uh, um, uh, buying Iranian oil, but not only Iranian oil, they buy from Iraq, they buy from Saudi and so on, um, is that they brokered um, in uh, last year, I think it was in March, a detente agreement between uh, 
Iran and Saudi Arabia, where they opened embassies and consulates that had been closed since 2017. Um, and you'd have more Hajj pilgrims and so on. So this was the first time that the Chinese seemed to have gotten involved politically in the region. And it was a wake up call, from what I can tell, in, uh, in the White House. And this really is what seems to have altered uh, President Biden's view on the Saudis and on the region. So he realized, I think, with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, that Saudi Arabia is a is a fundamental uh, player in the global economy uh, with the disruption of, of oil shipments and, and oil production, that the Saudis could come and play a role uh, in stabilizing markets, but also that um, he didn't want China to be involved in in the in the region politically. Um, the Chinese so far, other than this one thing that they brokered between the Chinese between the Iranians and the Saudis, have been fairly quiet uh, about all that's been happening. I think what they're doing is uh, even though you know disruption of shipments through the Red Sea is not in their interest because a lot of their own um, you know products uh, you know are 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 traded and and shipped through their through that uh, those um, choke points. Uh, the Chinese are watching to see how America behaves in the Red Sea. And if the Americans are not sufficiently, uh, you know, robust and, and hard in in stopping this um, unraveling situation where the Iranians take over the Bab al-Mandab, then, you know, a strong message will have been received in Beijing about what America may or may not do uh, in the Straits of Taiwan. So, so, so again, you know, the, the, what's happening in the Middle East has these, as, as Joel said, you know, has these global implications. And it's not just about Yemen or about Saudi or, or, or even about Iran. Um, and, and so the, the, uh, the, the administration really has to take on board, um, you know, that unless it reestablishes deterrence, um, it, it's going to be seen. Uh, globally, by the not just by the Iranians, but by the Russians and the Chinese, as a as as a weak uh, side that can be taken advantage of and pushed and bullied and so on. Now, some people th think that all of what we're seeing is re are, are really kind of manifestations of American decline and weakness, uh, and so you have all these hyenas. You know, if you compare if you compare these countries to hyenas who are going after this old lion that can barely defend itself and taking sort of bites out of its legs and so on. That's what we're seeing in a way, in a sense. And I think uh, we're far from actually being that old lion in the United States. And and uh, it's just a question of will and, and imagination. And that's what seems to be lacking. What we see now mostly is this attempt, almost a quixotic at attempt by the Biden administration to uh, try to get the Saudis to normalize with Israel by March or April, and that this would somehow solve everything. Um, again, it, this, the, these problems are not diplomatic. They're, they're actually about hard military power, um, first and foremost. And then diplomacy comes next, not not before. Mm -hmm. Joel? Yeah, Bernie's a, a, absolutely right. I, I would say it, it's, and it's not just... Uh, it, it's not just that the Chinese, and we can talk about the Russians too a little bit, but it's not just that the Chinese are um, uh, making inroads into the Middle East. It's that uh, over the course of the last several years, uh, little by little, our traditional allies in the region have begun to hedge 
in the Chinese direction because uh, they want to be shore up their position with the Chinese as as they see as they've seen the U.S. sort of recoil from its traditional role in the Middle East, um, and that's accelerated since uh, President Biden came into came into office. China and Russia and the Iranian regime are in a military alliance on several fronts. They are mutually supporting. So ostensibly, the Chinese have an interest in seeing uh, free flow of commerce through the Red Sea. They have an interest in that. However, they have a greater interest in seeing the United States uh, recede from the Middle East. Um, as it stands right now, you know, we, we militarily dominate, if we want to, the source of China's energy. So if we ever got into a strategic confrontation with the Chinese, we essentially have the keys to their gas tank, uh, without which they wouldn't be able to sustain uh, a confrontation for very long. But so when, when Americans year after year talk about wanting to pivot out of the Middle East, you know, when there was the when there was the normalization deal in Beijing that the Chinese brokered between the Iranians and the Saudis, there were some people in the U.S. government and Washington who said, well, this is a win-win-win. This is good. De-escalation is good. Uh, but if the Chinese are, if the Chinese are going to uh, begin to exert serious political influence in the Middle East and were to leave, it, it would be as though we're tossing the Chinese the keys to the gas tank on our way out. That doesn't make a whole lot of strategic sense. Of course, it didn't make sense to abandon the only C-17 capable airstrip on the western edge of, that the U.S. had on the western edge of China either, uh, in Bagram, in Afghanistan. But, but we've had a series of, of decisions that we've made that haven't taken geopolitics and military power projection into account. And what and our approach to these Middle Eastern to this Middle Eastern conflict is, has has been another one. Russia, the Russians intervened in the Syrian war in September of 2015, and that marked their return to the Middle East and it, with, with a significant force for the first time since 1973. And the region sort of watched to see if the United States was going to let that happen. And we did. The Obama administration let it happen. And so, and, and so the, the Russians also have been able to wedge themselves back in in the region little by little and the states of the region have hedged in the russian direction and and away from us uh to to be able to uh you know to uh to insulate themselves from potential russian pressure as they perceive that the u.s is not as willing as we have been traditionally uh to help protect our allies interests they're and they're watching the, the, now all eyes too are on uh, what just happened in Iraqi Kurdistan, for example. Every time you see a very close ally of the United States come under attack by one of these, by the Iranians or, or one of their proxies, the entire rest of the region watches to see what our response will be. You're, and, you're referencing the uh, the missile strike in uh, right. Erbil, I believe it was. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, if it winds up that there is no significant American response, and there hasn't been yet, then you're going to see people hedge further. So we agree, uh, the three of us, that the U.S. either is lacking 
a strategy in the Middle East or the current approach is desperately need a revision. So let's talk about what a 2-0 approach to the Middle East would look like, a revised Middle East approach, what the cornerstones of the strategy would be. And Joel, I want to start with you. You've used the word on this podcast several times, deterrence. Explain to me what deterrence would look like. Well, it's to show that you are capable of and willing to uh, use force and to use other instruments of national power to protect U.S. interests and to protect our allies uh, from threats. Uh, and that, uh, that's it kind of plain and simple. There, as you implement that, the first order of business is to acknowledge that our allies are our allies and to treat them as allies. And then secondly, to acknowledge that our adversaries slash enemies are our adversaries and to treat them accordingly. And we've tended to get this somewhat backwards under the Obama administration and the Biden administration. So these are the whole thing is not rocket science. It's pretty it's it's pretty straightforward. And we have some traditional we have traditional allies in the region with whom we share longstanding strategic interests. And we need to treat them like allies and work on repairing our relations with them. Unfortunately, under the Obama administration and then under the Biden administration, our relations with them have gotten have, have have been frayed at best. So I'm talking about Turkey, I'm talking about Egypt, I'm talking about Israel, I'm talking about Saudi Arabia. Those are our our anchor relationships in the Middle East, and in all on all four, uh, the relations have have been very poor at a time when uh, when those countries and our own interests in the Middle East are under. I don't know. They're under the most intense, uh, the, the most intense pressure, most intense attack that they have been probably since 1973 that I can think of. Mm -hmm. And Bernie, let's talk about the diplomatic cornerstone to this. And I'm interested in particular in Saudi Arabia and what MBS does here. And let's maybe think about his options a year from now when there is either a second Biden term or a second Trump term. Right. So, you know, MBS is driven and motivated um, unlike previous Saudi uh, leaders, by a nationalist agenda. yeah. So he's, he's principally focused on his own country, and his big worry is the energy transition and the country's heavy dependence on fossil fuels. So how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you navigate that transition? How do you manage to find other sources of revenue? And how do you make the society economically prosperous or maintain the economic prosperity of the country going forward? So he, the lens through which he looks at the world is, is that. And so, for instance, when he was contemplating uh, normalizing relations with Israel, that was largely not just about Israel. It wasn't really about Israel. It was more about the relationship with the United States. He is desperate for the United States to consider him and officially publicly state that uh, Saudi Arabia is a strategic ally of the United States, and he wants the security uh, uh, a treaty with the United States, a kind of mutual protection treaty with the U U.S., um, and he wants a, to build a civilian nuclear program w managed and run by Americans in his country, um, and a few other things like an, uh, like a, a free trade agreement and so on. So if he was able to get all these things from the U.S., he would normalize with Israel. Uh, that was before uh, October 7th. Since October 7th, the price has gone up in that he also wants... Uh, Israel to commit to a two-state solution uh, with the Palestinians. 
And the reason that, you know, he is pushing for that, and I think it's a valid reason, is that as long as you have um, a question like the Palestinian question out there, um, it becomes a, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a thing that spoilers in the region, namely Iran, can constantly use to, you know, make life difficult for everyone and to smash and destroy. And you have to remember, it's always easier to, 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 to break things than it is to build things. And he's in the process of building, and he wants peace and stability in order to do that domestically, which is, again, why he also had this detente agreement with the with the uh with the Iranians and is looking at a, a a roadmap to peace with the Houthis and so on. He just can't build his country if you have war and ballistic missiles and and drones and so on uh, falling on Saudi cities. And so so that's what drives him. And and I think that makes things a lot easier because he's not really an ideological ideologically driven person, right? He's someone who with whom you can kind of talk about strategic interests and cut deals um, uh, rather than someone who is like the Iranian regime, you know, driven by ideology. Um, uh, and, and I agree with, with Joel that you have to, the United States has to go back to the four strategic uh, allies of, of the region and, uh, and rebuild those relationships. Um, you know, otherwise you, you're not going to be able to, to get anywhere uh, the Iranians are very adept at picking off um, and weakening your allies. And and I do think also the question of, of Palestine has to be addressed also head on because this, you know, this, this will come back again and again as long as you don't have some sort of solution to, to the problem. And a number of Israelis during the Arab Spring events, you know, which began in two, 2010, 2011, really were pushing for um, a uh, an an attempt at, at ending the conflict with the between Israel and the Palestinians because they were arguing that once the Arab Spring events are over, that question will be resolved and you won't be able, people won't be able to take advantage of it again. But that didn't happen, and we see how Iran is able to use this and Hezbollah is able to use this to whip up you know kind of an incredible anger um, in countries like Saudi Arabia. Uh, which put the people, which put leaders like MBS in a very difficult position, um, right. and and they're unable to kind of get on with the process of of stabilizing the region and rebuilding region, making peace and so on. And another question on the strategy, Joel, and that's how to deal with Iran. The question would be: Is this a do you remain passive and just keep going along, hoping, anticipating that one day the regime collapses from within, or now? post-October 7th, and now seeing the broadening of Iranian activities through the Houthis now into Pakistan, do you now have to think of a strategy that involves more, shall we say, external measures to help hasten Iran's demise? And I'll let you two decide what external measures would be. But the question is, does the United States remain passive on Iran, or does it become active now in terms of Iran's future? No, the, the United States has no choice but to but to actively pressure the Iranian regime. It, it's It's gone beyond so many red lines. I mean, I and I, and I for one, I keep waiting for the United States and others to re, to respond to that in a way um, that our interests would, you would think, would dictate. Mm -hmm. uh, it it should have the Iranian regime should not be able to sell oil, a, a drop of oil, openly, af certainly after it intervened in the Ukraine war. 
once that emerged, that it, that is Iranian missiles and Iranian drones that are attacking Ukrainian population centers. That should have been it. Uh, that hasn't happened. Um, so the the U.S. needs to needs to return to a pressure policy against the Iranian regime. They were under immense pressure. Even now, I, I mean, this week, just recently, within hours, Secretary Blinken at Davos, I think, demonstrated that he uh, he he doesn't get it. He does he doesn't understand the relationship of cause and effect. Uh, he 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 said, "Well, the Iranian regime was in a box under the Obama administration because we had them in the nuclear agreement, and now they're acting the way they're acting because the Trump administration." pulled out of the nuclear agreement. No, the Iranian regime is behaving the way it's behaving because it behaves that way, because that's its nature and that's their that's their regional strategy. It, it's the JCPOA, it's the nuclear agreement that was the wrong approach. The appeasement approach was the wrong approach. And and it is, I'm 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 calling it appeasement, not in, a, in the pejorative sense, but appeasement in the classical sense. It is literally the appeasement strategy such as Chamberlain and Sandy Baldwin employed against Germany and Italy before the Second World War. That the Biden administration has been embarked on that as well. At the end of the Trump administration, you, you know, under the Trump administration, we had a we, we had a brief window of about two years of an effective pressure policy after the withdrawal from the uh from the nuclear agreement and then the reimposition of sanctions in the fall of 2018. Those sanctions were enforced quite tightly for a little over two years. By the end of 2020, the Iranian regime's foreign currency reserves had dwindled to under $10 billion, and they were probably just weeks away from financial collapse, at which point they would have had to cry uncle, I, mm -hmm. I think. Now, that was it coming at the same time that there was also a restoration of a military deterrent against Iranian proxy actions and the 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 you know the the uh, the climax of that was the strike that that killed uh, IRGC Quds Force commander Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad so so I, that's what a pressure policy looks like is use your economic tools use your military posture and use your uh, diplomacy uh, to enforce political isolation. That's the approach that has to happen, and it was working. Unfortunately, as soon as the Biden administration came in office, uh, they relaxed the pressure, they halted the pressure campaign. Uh, the delisting of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization was literally the first foreign policy decision the Biden administration took on January 25th, You know, the first week, the first few days after President Biden's inauguration. That was wrongheaded, and... Uh, and and uh, we're we're seeing that now. So there ha there really has to be a return to that pressure policy across the board, and it needs to be done not just by the United States unilaterally. It needs to be done jointly with our Middle Eastern allies and our European allies. Mm -hmm. Bernie, do you want to add that? No, I mean I I agree with Joel, and uh, but the, the thing that uh, you know regional actors and allies in the region you know don't see from the United States and always worry about is. Is is consistency, you know, whether the, you know, whether we we in the United States have the ability not just to start a process of deterrence, but to kind of see it through, um, and and it's the it's the it's the vacillation, it's the kind of inconsistency in American foreign policy, which of course is partly driven by our, our electoral cycle as well, that um, 
gives a lot of regional actors pause. And this is why, as Joel said, a number of them are doing this hedging strategy, which is to try to build links in the case of Saudi Arabia, not just with China, but also with Russia when it comes to oil production. Um, they're, they're coordinating very closely in, in this, you know, through OPEC plus with the Russians on this. So they, they don't, you know, they don't feel confident that we have their back. Okay. Final question for both of you. Um, so many moving parts in the Middle East right now. There is Hamas. Uh, there is the situation with Hezbollah in Lebanon. There is Yemen and the Red Sea. Uh, Pakistan now is involved. Uh, Joel mentioned missiles being fired in Syria's direction. Um, there is uh, missiles being fired in Iraq as well. Um, Iran's involvement in all of this. All of these different chapters to it. Question for each of you. If you had to focus for the moment on one facet of this, which of those categories are you focused on? The biggest challenge to the United States right now is really the the Red Sea, yep. more than any any other challenge. You know, because this has implications for you know the, the whole world, and it is it is the you know the, what's happening in Gaza is, is terrible, but it really is about Israel and and the Palestinians, um, and I would certainly focus on trying to. Uh, you know, find a long-term solution to this problem so that we can get on, uh, we can get our allies on board um, with finally normalizing with Israel. Um, but that's a long-term thing. It's not something you can address immediately. The thing that you can address immediately is is the Red Sea situation. And then certainly if there are any attacks on American forces in Syria or Iraq or anywhere else, uh, you can't just stand idly by and do nothing. Um, you know, the the thing with the with the Biden people, I've, when I've encountered them, is when they talk about Iran, it's as if you're they're talking about some sort of eight or ten foot giant, uh, and so they 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 have this idea that if you attack them, uh, they won't be deterred; they'll escalate. Right. Uh, but as as we saw with the assassination or the killing of Qasem Soleimani, uh, you know they they, they were deterred. Uh, and and so I think one has to also not inflate the size of 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 the of the adversary uh, just because it happens to suit your ideological pre, you know commitments and preconceptions about how appeasement will work better than deterrence. Mm -hmm. Joel, well, um, Bernie is one hundred percent right, and and uh, the he's also right that our regional allies are frustrated by what they see as a, the inconsistency in U.S. policy. But, you know, and certainly we have a democratic system. And so inconsistency in policy is built in. But you have to ask, why would a strong uh, U.S. policy concerning the Middle East uh, not be a bipartisan matter? What, how did it become a partisan uh, issue so that Republicans seem to want to be more forward leaning and Democrats unfortunately want to want to want to, want to sort of um, recoil from our traditional role and our traditional relationships in the Middle East. There is there there's also so I want to touch on that really quickly, which is it, it's almost as though in in Washington uh, Middle East policy got hijacked by the decolonization mindset. And and our some of our relationships in the Middle East um, came to be viewed through that prism, and there was a and, and that that resulted also that coincided with a neo isolationism on both the 
the the left fringe and the and the right fringe, which which you can see in, in other regions as well. And and that that's really muddied the waters with with respect to uh the just to preserving our our uh what should be pretty clear US interests in the Middle East. Bernie's also right that we we have and I, I think this is a post-Cold War phenomenon. Um, we have people in policy positions who have no uh, working memory of the Cold War. Um, they have they have little understanding of U.S. power, how the power differential. Uh, they, they they seem to approach they they approach all crises as though uh, these regional act these these uh, middle powers are somehow peers of the United States. Um, and they they act accordingly, and they they also I think because they weren't because they don't have a working knowledge of the Cold War, um, that they they also they can they can talk themselves into thinking that the laws of gravity don't apply to some of these rogue adversaries of ours, whether that's the Iranian regime or North Korea or so on. That that just that 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 pressure will make them stronger or something uh which, which is not the case these, these are these are human beings this these are these are kind of you know, most of them are relatively weak compared to the united states and pressure works um so we're there there's a lack of under we we, we have policies and we, we have regional strategies i think that are informed by a lack of understanding and it's unfortunate so we to be honest with you on some of some of this we, we need a reset in our uh, national security strategy, uh, in our national security establishment, we need a reset in our and re-education almost of our national security strategists. No, it sounds to me you both work on the Hoover Middle East Working Group. I think you guys have a lot of work ahead of you in 2024 and 2025. That's true. Joel Bernie, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for helping uh, explain what is a very complicated topic and hope to have you on the show sometime in the near future. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle, excuse me, our X handle, I should say, still trying to get over that, is at HooverInst. That's H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Joel Rayburn is on X. His X handle is at Joel underscore Rayburn. Rayburn spelled as you might expect, R-A-Y-B-U-R-N. Bernard Hagel, you can find him at princeton.edu. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show. That's hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which keeps you updated on what Joel and Bernard and everybody else writing for Hoover and doing podcasts for Hoover is up to. You should also check out The Caravan, which is a quarterly publication that Hoover does online, which looks at contemporary dilemmas in the Middle East. Both Joel and Bernard are Caravan contributors, again, by either writing or doing podcasts. You can also sign up for Hoover's Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast each month to your inbox. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.